Hello, I'm Jeff Smith and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Over the last 40 years, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? During my life, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets so I can share them with you. The amazing thing I've discovered is that all successful people follow the same 11 steps. Some of the people I interviewed were aware of these 11 steps and some were not, but incredibly, they all followed the exact same 11 steps. I wonder if you can identify the 11 steps of success in the amazing interviews in this podcast series. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going. And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. The purpose of these podcasts is to help you and, of course, to entertain you. And any donations we receive go directly to the Jeff Smith Foundation so that together we can make a positive difference to other people's lives who perhaps are a little less fortunate than ourselves. And finally, thank you for all the likes, the shares and the follows. It really makes a huge difference because it gets the show listed on the big podcast platforms. By hitting the like button and leaving a review, you're helping us to bring you more great content, more great ideas, and of course, more great guests. On today's Secrets of Success, I'm getting the inside story on the world's first commercially available flying car, the PAL-V, and what flying cars will mean to you and I in our lives. Of course, flying cars have been talked about for decades, and amazingly, the first flying car was made as far back as 1917, just 14 years after the Wright brothers first took to the air. Since then, there have been many versions, but none have quite made it. That is, until now. The PAL-V. Yes, it's for sale. Yes, you can actually buy one. And today I have with me Andy Wall. He's the head of sales in the UK for PAL-V. And I'm going to find out the truth behind the myths, the legends, and what are the true possibilities for the flying car and what difference it will make to our lives. So let's bring in the man himself. Welcome to the show, Mr. Andy Wall. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for having me on this uh wonderful series that you're doing. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here. Andy, welcome to the show. It is, of course, great to have you. Flying cars, as I've said in the introduction, the first one was 1917. That's pretty unbelievable. Since then, lots have tried it, even the cartoon characters like the Jetsons. But none have quite made it until now. So what makes you and Pal-V different to all of the others? Well, yeah, um, it's quite a quite a history, isn't it? Uh, and and let's be fair in terms of commercial reality, it's a history of relative failure. Uh, is that because of the lack of uh, entrepreneurship? Is it because uh, engineering challenges that we face, or more likely uh, to do with certification and standards? Although back in the days you're talking about, back in 1917 and beyond, uh, the certification standards weren't certainly as high as they are today. So. There has to be some other fundamentals. And actually, I think it's quite simple. Uh, The two genres are, whilst very familiar to some or all of us, we can look up and see a little pipe of Cherokee flying around or even a diminutive gyroplane or a helicopter. Um, But, uh, and we also see, of course, vehicles, uh, cars. We drive them, we see them, we touch them, we look at them. Marrying the two together seems to be the big challenge, and I think that the secret, certainly from Palvi's personal point of view, or their perspective, is one of keeping it simple and not utilizing or attempting to utilize rocket science in the development of this product. So by keeping it simple, we've been able to 
bring together the two genres and put them into a package that is relatively approachable and affordable for most of the buying and potential purchasing public. Okay, that's that's a little bit of the technical bit sorted out. But for those people who are listening, tell us about this flying car. Can you explain what it looks like, perhaps how it functions, and perhaps how we can use it? Yeah, so it, of course it's... Uh, a beauty to behold, um, Italian styling with Dutch engineering. Uh, what more can one ask for, you ask? Yeah. Um, uh, look, it, it, it's, it's, so it's, a Dutch, um, it's a Dutch company then, right? It is a Dutch company. Uh, and uh, there's no reason whatsoever why our pre-production samples and uh, prototypes are in orange whatsoever. Pure coincidence. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so she's a small, compact two-seater which uh, has actually three wheels, and I'll go on to that in a second as to why she has three wheels, and then a rather neatly folding rotor system and mast, which then envelops the roof and creates a very compact, small, beautifully engineered vehicle for driving on the roads, which then, of course, we are then ideally taking to uh, your own private airstrip, a small airfield, or why not a big one? And taking okay, it I, I just want, if I may, I just want to pick up on a couple of points there. So mm-hmm. when people think of a flying car, I guess people think wings, like a yeah. fixed wing aircraft. Yeah. So, so the PAL-V does not have wings. It has a rotor system. So it looks like a helicopter, in fact. So you've alluded a little about that. So why is it rotors and why does it not have wings how was that decision made and how does it all work yeah so uh yes firstly it has rotors um secondly it's not actually a helicopter uh it it is a gyrocopter or gyroplane which coming up in the next year will celebrate their centenary since the first design of a gyroplane which predates a helicopter by 10 years so there we go there's a nice simple well-tried thought out and beautifully functional system of flight which encompasses the simplest of forms i.e using air and wind to keep us airborne so effectively like a rotating wing now why did we choose the gyrocopter uh, various reasons, but the primarily one which, which was instinctive to most aviators is, is simplicity to fly and its ability not to stall and to create the perfect scenario for newbies, uh, existing pilots and so on to transfer into an aircraft that is absolutely at one within the environment to which it's flying. Secondly, it folds up nicely and we don't want wings and other aviation-related uh, articles such as ailerons and tails sticking out into the road area for the usual um, trolley bashing in the supermarket, for example. So that was a big concern for the regulators, and we therefore decided to tuck everything up neatly and put it on top of the rotors, on top of the roof and hide the rotors away. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but for now... I want to get to the questions that everybody asks about the flying car. So, how usable is a flying car? I want to either confirm or dispel some of the myths and legends here. And I think my understanding is that people think, oh, you're driving along the highway, you're in a traffic jam, let's just take off and get to the air. That's not going to happen, is it? No, um, (laughs) not quite. Um, But we do have uh, quite a few tricks up our sleeve. Uh, For example, here in the UK, where we're broadcasting from, uh, we are very fortunate to have the ability to take off and land from private strips, small airfields and so on, which are scattered in enormity around the UK. So firstly, we have a lot of options from a point of view of takeoff sites. Secondly, We are surrounded, even on our telephones, with information giving us accurate data on traffic ahead, whether or not the roads are blocked, what type of weather we have. Now, coupled with the PAL-V and, of course, your new shiny pilot's license that we will provide you with, you will also be able to access the PAL-V app, which would then tell you, okay, where do you want to go from and to? Right, okay, in 26 miles, there will be traffic which will delay you by 35 minutes. We suggest traveling to this airport. Port, and therefore you avoid the traffic in advance, take off, 
fly over the top of all that, wave, say hi, and praise be that you're not in it, uh, and then land at your destination or close as you may be to your destination and continue your journey in your own vehicle. Now, that's pretty practical. Uh, okay, so just to be sure then, in order to fly, we need uh, an airstrip of some kind to land and take off. There is no taking off in the road or anything like that. Are there, no, uh, are there any limitations as to where you can land and take off? Not just with PAL-V, but with any flying car. I think the question is fitting the same. Yeah, so we, we do require a short takeoff roll. It's a, it's a very much shorter landing roll, but this is a short takeoff and landing vehicle, which effectively means you may need up to 200 possibly 250 meters for a takeoff and landing anything from say 20 to 50 meters would be the norm. Where can you do that? Um, well, as I already alluded to, there are a, a heck of a lot of private airstrips in the UK, or even for example, if you're the owner of a house with a field, which is uh, pretty nicely mown, you could even take off from your own garden uh, or a large field. Where you can't take off from, of course, is roads. Um, that would be A, illegal, and B, quite dangerous, given all the road furniture, the lamppost, the telegraph wires, and so on and so forth, uh, but also causing a disturbance to other road users or pedestrians and so on. So we have to be uh, aware of our situation and literally utilize all of the facilities which we have, which are in abundance, rather than try to create something new. Okay, great. Let me get some more common questions out of the way then. Do we need a pilot's license for the PAL-V? No, only if you wish to fly it. Um, <laughs> so there, there's a controversial answer. Um, but, you, you, you know... We, I, I must listen. be more careful with my questions now, Andy. In, yeah, order, in, um, in order to fly the PAL-V in the air, do we need a pilot's license? It helps. Yes. Um, yeah, so... We, we do. Would need... Let, let's just clarify this. It's, yeah. it, it is a legal requirement, Right. In order to fly a vehicle or, or, or fly an aircraft, of course, yes, uh, here in the UK and across most of Europe and the rest of the world, a pilot's license would be required. Yeah. In this case, we are utilizing the, par uh, the private pilot's license G for gyroplane, mm -hmm. which then would have a rating of the flying car for the PAL-V as an addition to that license. So um, Already we have established a Fly Drive Academy, which would take care of that. But let's just go back a little moment. You asked me the question, and I rather cheekily said, no, um, how can that be so? Well, when people ask me that question, I, I often get the same shock, horror, oh, okay, yes, I understand. The reality is that there are many people, uh, many helicopter purchasers that either have neither the inclination or possibly the aptitude, but most likely the time to actually go out and get their pilot's license. So what they tend to do is they will purchase the helicopter. They have a function. They have a use for this, this aircraft. And then they will say, okay, I need a pilot. I want to go from A to B to C to D. And they get a pilot in. Now, you can imagine we have already begun training, but we have a massive list of potential pilots that are offering themselves because, A, what more fun can you have than flying a flying car? And, B, they want this rating so that they can offer their services to entrepreneurs and busy people that don't wish to actually go through the license process. So technically, um, oh, yes, you I need a see. license, but yes. okay. you, can, so you can use it without. Uh, providing you have a chauffeur and or pilot to take you on your journey. Okay, yeah. Let, let's look at the, some of the, the practicalities of this then. Mm -hmm. How far will it fly? So, depending on conditions and so on, in, in aviation, as you know, Jeff, being an avid aviator, right. uh, we tend not to talk too much in distance, but more in terms of time, mm -hmm. which then when equated with speed would give you a rough distance. So, Roughly 300 miles would give you a usable range, um, which, for example, would get you from London to Paris, still with enough fuel on board to then exit the airport and drive down the Champs-Élysées, pick up the ubiquitous baguette, the onions and so on, and then get back to the airport, fill up with regular car fuel and fly home. On the road, approximately 750-mile range from the from the rather wonderful range tank. So, uh, wow. yeah, we have a lot of options open to us. So two, two more questions then. What kind of fuel does it take? Regular car fuel. Okay. On and, the pumps. And tell me about the engine. So 
really interesting. Um, when flying, we have two Rotax 912 fuel injection flat four boxer engines running, so a, technically it's a flat eight. And whilst driving, one of those engines remains dormant and it utilizes just the one for the driving via the rear wheels through two drive shafts. So very nice uh, little setup there. Okay, excellent. Now, some of the listeners might know, as you've already alluded to, I know that you are a pilot. You've flown fixed wing, you've flown helicopter, you fly gyro. I have my pilot's license for a gyro, so I know a lot of what you're talking about, which is cool. One of the things that changes things for the gyro pilots here, and the real big thing, is two engines in flight. Now, what lots of people talk to me about flying and flying a gyro, and and the gyro is one of the safest aircraft. It's a cross between a helicopter, a fixed-wing aircraft, and a parachute. So in engine yeah. failure, you descend like a parachute. You have lots of time and probably the safest aircraft in the air, which is great. Yeah. However, what makes a huge difference for that, there is no single engine aircraft, as you know, that can uh, fly across a major conurbation such as London. It's just not allowed because if you did have engine failure, there's nowhere to fall. And of course, crossing at large expanses of water, one engine is not the preferred option. So Palvi having two engines in flight not only gives us the flying car, but also gives us amazing capabilities to fly across places where single-engine aircraft cannot go. So, how close are we to driving? How close are we to flying? When will this dream become the reality? Well, the driving... Um, uh, firstly, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, you, you summarised uh, very well. Um, uh, I'll quickly answer that question, but I want to bring up another point, which, sure. is, um, which is fundamental to, to you and I in general aviation and GA pilots all over the world. Uh, firstly, when, when are we driving? Well, we're already driving. Uh, anyone that was driving around the streets of London a couple of weeks ago would have seen this uh, crazy machine flying and driving, or should I say driving uh, over the, uh, the streets and the bridges and the beautiful points of interest around London from Piccadilly Circus and so on. So we caused chaos wherever we went, uh, photographing um, people, car spotters, you name it. But it was so much fun, Jeff, really I so much I can imagine. Fun. I can imagine. Yeah. I bet all the, all the phones are out on the pavements along London, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think we had to create a new hashtag. It's a what? Um, so <laughs> that, that was interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, secondly, the second part of your question, which was, when will it be flying? It's, it's a question that's often put to us. And whilst it's frustrating to uh, not be able to say next week, the week after, um, one thing that people should be aware of, we started this whole conversation with talking about flying cars being created and talked about since 1917. There is one reason why flying cars are not already in existence and in abundance taking off from wherever to wherever, and that's certification. Um, it's not for the faint-hearted. Uh, we are going through the same, exact same certification process as would Boeing or Airbus. The average time frame for that currently is between 9 and 11 years. Our verification flight or proof of concept took place in 2012. So you can do the maths and work out that we're around about on target to be looking at actually the end of this year for our proof of concept fulfillment flights, which then verify to the standard that we've now created. Bearing in mind that EASA, which is the European Aviation Safety Agency, they're the ones that control certification for all of the aircraft that are flying in European skies and world skies as well, come to think of it. Um, they actually didn't have a category, not just for the flying car, but also for the gyroplane. So there were a number of hurdles which we chose this type of vehicle because it's the safest, the simplest, and possibly one of the easiest to fly. But it also presented immediacy a problem with regards certification. We, we didn't have anything to work with. So it's been a, a journey uh, to create this certification, to create the standard. And now we have a category within EASA. They had aviation or 
aeroplane. They had helicopter. We now have gyrocopter. And as a sub-menu, they have flying car. Now, that's where we are today. So we have the road approvals, which, quite frankly, you, me, and most other people say, yeah, yeah, but so what? That actually was pretty fundamental because, essentially, we have an aircraft that can now drive on the road. Um, the aviation certification standard has been created. It has been published. So we are now finalizing all of the components, all of the suppliers of the components. So whether it's a wing mirror, a wing nut, a, a door lock, all of these companies that suppliers or ourselves must be certified to make sure that each component complies with that regulation. Once that's finished, which should be towards the end of this year, we can do the flights and we will be starting deliveries in Q2, Q3 next year. Lucky us. Right. So it's not flying yet. And it's right. Let, let me put a time date on this interview. We're now in May 2022. So we're probably looking at the flying car actually flying, perhaps, fingers crossed, early 2023. Is this what you're saying? Yeah. And look, let, let's just be fair. Um, if we wanted to get out and fly this aircraft, we could apply for a local, so that means a Netherlands-based aviation regulator approval for a one-off experimental flight. Some people have done that. We call them the glory flights. It's something that grabs the attention, and technically, at that moment, you could say it is certified to fly. I mean, I have a certificate for swimming. It was 25 meters when I was at school, but it doesn't mean to say I am properly uh, certified as a swimmer um, so whilst not knocking people that do that there's a reason why it's done and it's to gain sponsorship it's to gain uh, investment and so on so we've already done that we did it back in 2012 um, so if we were to stop and say right no no excuse me yeah so we just want to go back to the Netherlands aviation regulators and have an experimental flight and just go around the Netherlands a, EASA wouldn't be that impressed. B, our engineers would say, why are we doing this? We're almost there. We need to keep pushing. We need, you know, we've got so many man hours that we can work on. And, and C, I don't think it would gain, really, once people realize what they've done, uh, it doesn't gain us any advantage and just puts us back six to eight months. So um, none of us are concerned about the flying aspect. The biggest challenge, really, was getting the vehicle to drive. Mm. Um, and, and drive properly within the legal parameters on the European roads. Let's take, for example, the two different regulations. So we have aviation regulations and we have car regulations, both of which have fuel tanks, both of which have very differing standards. Which one do we go with? We only have one fuel tank. So someone had to give, someone had to say, ah, okay, we didn't think about that. If it's going to do both, we'll go with the middle option. So that middle option was created. That's the flying car standard, but it wasn't just taken overnight. It, it was a long process. And these are just very small number of the challenges that uh, creating and building the world's first commercially available flying car has presented to Pal V. It's unbelievable. So let, let's get some onto some commercial aspects now. The development cost must be astronomical and continues. How long from the drawing board until now? How long has it taken to get it this far? company was founded in 2008. Um, the bones of what you see today were started back in 2011. So we're looking at between 12 to 14 years uh, in terms of getting to where we are today. Wow. We have to factor in... Yeah. We should, we should factor in, of course, the COVID situation didn't bring anything quicker. Um, it would be easy to, to say that put us back two years. I don't think it has. We, we were able to do some work from homes and uh, enable our engineers to sort of pool their resources in different ways. But it, it did, certainly didn't help, and, and not with the certificators either. Okay, Let, let's get some kind of idea on, on the size of this thing. You've already said it's a two-seater, and the mast and the rotors fold up onto the roof. Uh, can you store it in a regular car garage? How, how big absolutely. is it compared yeah. to your regular car? So if you yeah, can paint absolutely. a picture for us. Well, it's about the same size in terms of height and width as any regular saloon. So whether it's a Toyota Avensis or or a Ford Focus, it's it's that size, and it would go under most car park restrictors and go in through all roads that we are 
planning to drive upon uh, in the city centrescape, for example. Yeah, I was talking to some friends yesterday saying that I had you on the show today. And one of the questions was, ah, now here's the real big one. Can you ask him, please, will it go into a McDonald's drive through <laughs> I think it will, given on what you've just said. <coughs> I, 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 I haven't tried it, um, but I, I can pretty well say that the Dutchies are as fond on their McDonald's as the <laughs> as the Brits. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I do believe that will, was probably one of the certification standards that we uh, had to comply with as it sure. fit in the drive-through. Yeah, other other takeaways are available. Yeah, um, indeed. So, yeah. No, so thank you for thank you to your friends for that uh, <laughs> that illuminating question. Actually, that's a first. Um, I, I haven't been asked that one before, and believe me, I've been asked a lot of questions okay another one was does it have a boot yeah it's got a small uh, luggage space um this is aviation you're familiar with this story jeff um your your aircraft that you're flying for example has also a diminutive amount of uh luggage space and there's a reason for that um when weight is a big issue for uh, for all aviation uh whether it's a, a Robinson 22 or a 44, it's often said, actually, talking of Robinson, that the best two-seat helicopter that Robinson make is their four-seater. Uh, and, and that's not a de- derogatory comment. It's literally the fact that put two people on board with some luggage and it flies very well. Put four with four lots of luggage and it, it's not flying quite as well as you would possibly want it to be or even maybe over the technical uh, weight limit. So we do allow uh, a small amount of uh, luggage, but that has to be proportional to the load and we do of course have a load restriction so somewhere in the region of 280 kilograms would uh, suffice for two people and then the fuel and any baggage you wish to carry okay that's an important point really because with gyros they were commissioned in world war ii as we both know by juan de la sierra but then they were not adopted too well because they're not so good with weight bearing. So we're limited on what we can carry as to what you say. Then the helicopter took over where the engine is connected to the rotors, where on a gyro, of course, nothing is connected to the rotors. They're reliant upon the wind. So although we can have a flying car, we're certainly not going to see it expanding and have a flying truck or certainly not one that's a gyro anyway. So we're at the limits, I think, of perhaps where a gyro can take us. So when I fly, I'm often asked, what can you carry? I say two fat blokes and a tank of fuel, a little bit of luggage. So I guess that's about the same for you two. I'm I'm going to change the habits of a lifetime, Jeff, and disagree with you. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) um, I would point you to the 1960s and the fairy rotodyne. which was, for those that don't know, um, a large, if I think, if I'm correct, something like 30-seat aircraft that operated on the gyrocopter principle, utilizing for a short takeoff and landing, even vertical takeoff, to utilize some helicopter-esque controls, which enabled it to have tip rotors or tip Mm -hmm. jets, which inevitably were hellish noisy and flying from the center of London to Brussels, if I recall, it was creating quite a stir, but uh, mostly because of the noise it made. Um, There is no real reason why we can't ramp up, and indeed we do have, um, on paper at least, or or on the the computers, uh, options to go two, four, six seats and so on. One of the big differences that we have, of course, is we have two engines. We have ample amounts of power. And even with the current fossil fuel technology engines that we're operating, they still offer us the options to upscale. Um, But quite frankly, the exciting development in various other aspects of automotive and aviation-based engines uh, or or motors are becoming, or is becoming very, very um, interesting from our perspective, be it turbine, be it uh, hydrogen, or of course, uh, when the battery technology comes to the fore, um, utilizing some some of combination of both. So power is everything. um, And, you know, the more weight we add, we just need lighter power units. Okay. So you bring me on to what was my next question, actually, is that cars have internal combustion engines. You're carrying two of them. At what point will it go electric, if at all? Don't know, Jeff. 
Okay. Um, I don't know. Uh, given what we're seeing out in general aviation uh, across the world now, we're looking at some microlite, high-wing, uh, small aircraft, two-seat aircraft, able to fly in excess of two hours, which would be a bare minimum, given that we also need a reserve of power should we reach the point at which we technically are running out of battery. Um, that's a very lightweight and less draggy, uh, i.e. it's not pulling a parachute through the air like the gyroplane. Um, so for all of the safety aspects of the gyro, it also has a, a trade-off, which is it, it creates a lot of drag. You're literally powering a windmill going through the air. So we need a lot of power. Um, that means we need a big battery, which means we need a lot of weight, which means we need a lot of power, which and it goes on and on. So um, currently the prognosis for replacing, let's say, uh, one of the two engines uh, with an electric motor and supplying that with enough battery power, the range that we would have, the usable range, would be less than an hour. And quite frankly, that isn't sufficient it's, yeah, for... It's not enough, is it? No, it isn't sufficient for any personal or, or certainly any commercial applications. Mm -hmm. I don't think any aircraft has gone electric yet for exactly those reasons. Okay, so we have a regular-sized car. We have two engines. We have a gyroplane that it converts into. We have two people, a tank of fuel, and some luggage. You're not going to be taking a couple of suitcases with each person. That's what we have. That's great. Now, the all-important question that everyone wants to know. How much is it? Well... How long is a piece of string? Specification, equipment, and so on will dictate. Let's just be less than disingenuous, and we'll talk about the type of vehicle that you, Jeff Smith, would like to purchase. We're not talking full poverty pack here. We're talking a vehicle lavished with all of the luxuries that you have come used to. All joking apart, uh, the pricing starts at 300,000 euros, so in today's money, it's around about 260,000 pounds. And... Again, a slightly higher specification would get you dual controls as standard and various other trim options, which would then probably add about another 40000 to that. And for the very lucky first few, we have a special limited edition called the Liberty Pioneer. And as the name implies, there are the first 90 vehicles to be produced will be the highest possible specification. So we will have every bell and whistle you can imagine, except a bell and a whistle. And they will retail for somewhere in the region of £460,000. Now, someone said to me the other day, well, there's two things that were said to me. One was, oh, my goodness, or words to that effect, I have a watch that costs more than that. <laughs> to, which, to which I replied, well, that's fantastic. Uh, you must have a beautiful watch, but can it tell the time in Paris in a couple of hours? Okay, um, so that was that one. Uh, and the other one was, wow, that's a lot of money. Um, to which I replied, well, I, I've just priced up an equivalent Range Rover um, to the one that was sitting next to me, and that was in the region of £140,000. So I think it's all relative. Um, you know, I, I, whilst it's not, um, you know, everyday money, it, it is also not an everyday vehicle. So I think the options that you have and moving forwards with this sort of genre, I think it's all representing amazing value for money. Mm. So we're looking roughly $300,000 to $500,000, depending on the specification that you want. Exactly. Yeah. Who do you think is going to buy it? Ah, Where's the market? So yeah, um, you, you, for example, you're a perfect customer for us. I've got the order pad and got the pen waiting for you for your right now. Um, yeah, we, we have a myriad of different people from all walks of life. Um, so we've got high flyers, literally and metaphorically. We have entrepreneurs that are thinking, well, that would save me time getting from A to B to C via D. Uh, we also have people that are just thrill seekers. Uh, enthusiasts, car enthusiasts that would like to be seen and try and, and collect such an unusual vehicle and be one of the first. In addition to that, we have quite a few commercial applications which are burgeoning uh, our order books, especially in the Netherlands, where, of course, we have the, the highest proportion of impact in terms of exposure, having been there from the start. Um, so that could come from anything from something that was close to you 
which would be organ delivery. Um, so to the highlands and islands, for example, uh, somebody can drive from a hospital to a small strip, take off, fly across the, the, the water, again, utilizing the dual engine we have, that built-in safety, land and then continue the journey, all with the same vehicle, bringing life-saving organs or or even first response to a remote location quicker than perhaps any other potential vehicle. That's an amazing story you've plugged into. So you know that I've been doing some charity work uh, to do this, not not with flying organs around. That that has different liabilities and, and different conditions. But I did set up a project and uh, forged an amalgamation with another charity called Blood Bikes, who picked up some medication that had a shelf life of just five hours from release yeah. to being delivered to the patient. Yeah. And, and what was happening before I got involved with this, it was given to the charity called Blood Bikes, which is a motorcycle, and then ridden on the road to the hospital. The problem is the range was around two hours from Birmingham. So they could so you could only save lives two hours away because then it has to get to the hospital in the hands of the doctor and everything else like that. So they couldn't reach very far with it. So we then hooked up with another uh, charity called Blood Bikes. So Blood Bikes picked up this medication from the hospital, bought it to the charity I was working with, which is Civil Air Support. Uh, I would be there and then fly or one of the members would fly the medication to the other side of the country. We've even done silly aisles. So we're saving lives of people who otherwise would not have been able to have been yeah. saved. Now, one of the things that caused a massive complication in that, a bike can ride rain, wind, sunshine, what, whatever the weather throws, the bike can do it. An aircraft cannot. Yeah. And me flying a gyro, I was prevented sometimes from doing the flight myself because of the weather conditions on the day. And this is where I think something like a PAL-V would come in incredibly useful because you can agree to do the trip and move the medication no matter what the weather. So worse comes to worse, if you do take off and you encounter bad weather, you can land, convert to a car, and then continue the journey. So where I would see it particularly useful in that role is we like to prepare for the unexpected, prepare for the worst, hope it doesn't happen, but when it does, you have an option. Whereas before, with the bike and the aircraft, there's so much planning, but if anything happens in the air, there is no plan B if you don't get to the other airfield, where you do have a plan B with the flying car. So that, that's a really good point to pick up. You can do, yeah, the, you, whole, you you can do the whole thing on, yeah. in, in one vehicle. You, you nailed it. Thank you. And um, what we've inadvertently stumbled across is a cure for one of the worst diseases known to general aviation, which is press-on-itis, get-home-itis. Mm -hmm. um, we've all done it. We've flown somewhere, possibly with somebody else, uh, and one of the prerequisites for actually going to this event, this location, this meeting was – we will get back, won't we? Uh, and, of course, being aviators and being very proud of our skills and our aircraft and our ability to complete missions or whatever you'd like to call it, we do tend to put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And seeing people's gaunt look and the face of, of trepidation, not so much fear, but just worry whilst at an event looking at their phones, looking upwards at the sky, the buildup of the cumulus and so on, it's, a, it's an issue that we've all faced in GA, and this single-handedly says, no problem. So let's say, for example, we've flown from Wolverhampton, and we've gone down to Goodwood, and we're at an event, and the weather north of us, because that's where we're going back home, has started to build up. It's midsummer. We're going to have some storms coming through. You're looking at your phone. You're looking at the weather app. You're looking at your data on your nav system, and it's basically saying it's a bit gnarly over Oxford. Now, that just happens to sit halfway between Goodwood and Wolverhampton in this case, which is in the central Midlands area. So what do you do? Well, two options. You can take off and risk it, 
if you're in a general aviation vehicle, so whether it's a, 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 an airplane or a helicopter. And then as you approach the storm, you can either go left and go right. Ordinarily, you don't tend to see that. You basically see gray and rain and mist. You can continue possibly beyond yours or even the aircraft's capabilities, or you can divert and even return. But that doesn't get you home. It doesn't cover your bases for, we will get home, won't we? Yes. Therefore, people tend to press on, and then the ultimate outcome can be somewhat unfortunate. We've, we've seen it, we've read it, and this is not something that we wish to continue uh, and push into the world of general aviation. From our perspective, flying car, it offers you a multitude of options, as you've alluded to. So we could drive the complete journey back, Maybe we arrive an hour later than we anticipated. Maybe we set off an hour earlier, but we drive and we get home, no drama. We can fly to the point where it starts to become a little bit, hmm. Press the button on your nav system and it will give you an option of, as you know, probably four, five, six divert airports. So drop down, pick the one you wish, exit the airport, drive the rest of the journey. Or perhaps the weather's come further south and you drive until you hit the blue sky find the airfield, continue the journey home. It's a game changer, Jeff. It, absolute it is, ab- game abs- changer. Absolutely. I just want to pick up on something you've said there, actually. Uh, us in GA. GA means general aviation. And, and for want of a simpler term, that means a private pilot with your own plane or helicopter or something yeah. like that. Now, there have been very sadly multiple plane crashes helicopter crashes with famous people who have been killed and whenever this happens as a pilot myself i usually get a phone call from a friend saying how on earth jeff does that does a helicopter fly into the side of a mountain how does that happen why did that happen and it's because of this what us pilots call gets home itis in other words we're flying somewhere and we fly beyond the limits of our skills and what we're used to. We fly in low cloud, hence going to the side of a mountain. Uh, one of the common things when flying low is hitting trees or power lines. You don't see power lines, and those are the things that bring aircraft down. And that's because rather than land, people think, I'll just go a bit further, I'll just go a bit further. Now, I know you and Andy have been forced to land or have chosen to land, not forced, chosen to land because of a problem. I too have been in the same conditions and I landed into a field and uh, otherwise, what happens? You land in a field, you have to find someone with a trailer, get permission from a farmer, whoever owns the field, and then get your aircraft taken home. And... uh, it's not what you want to do, and that's why people press on and they die. Yep. Or at the very best outcome, they crash their aircraft and survive. Where the flying car, the PAL-V, this is the game changer because you can be flying and think, I'm really not comfortable here. I'm just going to land, convert to a car, and drive it home. So that brings in another question for people who are non-pilots. How do you know where to land? Well, of course, there's this thing called an iPad with some fantastic apps on there, which are phenomenal, which is like sat-nav in the sky. So you can plan your route and divert and land anywhere you wish and then convert to a car. And I think from that point of view and understanding that, I think not only is it a game changer, I think it's a lifesaver. Because there's no need for people to continue to fly when they're beyond their limits and they should not be flying. No, I'm quite right. And um, fair play, it's added complexities um, and added time for the certification. But I think the fundamental aspect of PAL-V is safety above all. And not only just the ability to traverse built-up areas with the added bonus of having two engines, but also this factor of being able to drop down and drive on or continue the journey by car. It, it really is a game changer. And as you said, it, it's it's a pain, 
when you have to decide to drop down and if you're into an area where you possibly won't be able to get out of again it, it is a, an inconvenience and at, at, very, at the very least it's um, sort of you lose a little bit of face especially with your passenger who probably won't want to come with you again um, but you know of course that is the the, the two choices we face um, so we have a fly drive academy uh, it's already established and we are opening up uh, all over Europe uh, in the next year. The, one of the first options will be here in the UK and uh, as such we, we have simulators. We will be training people in both simulators and to start their PPLG, the private pilot's licensed gyroplane, they'll be given access to one of our fleet of academy gyroplanes so they get the full skill set a little bit like learning to drive in a little sports car and then then being transferred into a large saloon or an suv later on so you will be given a type rating to to accompany your new shiny pal v there there is an opportunity there jeff and i know you have a, a subject close to your heart which is your foundation which is a laudable creation that you've put together and one of the aspects of that would be to offer people that perhaps who are less fortunate than ourselves even those with terminal diagnosis uh, an option to to fly and i know that's a, a cause very close to your heart and wow. uh, as soon as pal v has a flying car available i'd like to offer you guys uh, and someone within the foundation would be more than willing to uh, put forward this as a promotion for us uh, we're looking at really putting ourselves available to you for a day that simulation it's access to the gyroplane academy and then to top it all one of the first ever flights in a flying car so wow yeah uh, i don't know what to say no, so um, thank you so much. I didn't expect that. So one of the things we do at the foundation is I like to take people flying. And as you know, um, people can make a donation. I'll take them fly. And then that money together, we can make a difference to people who are less fortunate than ourselves. But as you alluded to there, we also take people who... Um, perhaps have a terminal illness and maybe on their bucket list they have a flight, we'll take them flying. But for you to offer that in the Pal-V, when it's, I'm, I'm blown away. That is amazing. So I think sometime in 2023, someone who's listening to this podcast series who knows about the Jeff Smith Foundation is actually going to fly in the pal v uh, andy thank you i am that is amazing uh, truly truly amazing truly thank you so much okay so oh, pleasure let's say someone wants to buy one what's the process now yeah so we're offering a very simple easy access proposal so you are, are actually purchasing what we call an otp which is literally an option to purchase it's familiar ground for people within the hypercar supercar and luxury car market and that gives people an access to a bespoke production slot within the country that they are for example uh, living in so here for example jeff you would give me the the 10,000 euros so just 9,000 pounds and this guarantees you a slot in production that cannot be usurped now that's a transferable option so should you mm -hmm. decline in the future or should your circumstances dictate that you no longer wish to continue you may transfer that option so it's a relatively easy way of guaranteeing at least your production slot so that when the time comes you're not then at the back end of the queue so that's a very simple process and it's accessible by the website okay and so we we know it's dutch made is there a possibility yet of visiting the factory and seeing more close up yeah absolutely we're waiting uh, open arms um yeah we've just introduced since the advent of uh, our newly found freedoms to travel and fly um we're doing it cautiously uh, we're going to offer very small groups so maybe four five six people that are of particular interest to come and see the technical center so get access to see the originators of the vehicle the prototypes we have some very interesting vehicles there which are quite key to the process of 
developing what is essentially an aviation engine, uh, which was driven on the road in a donor vehicle. I'm not going to let out of the bag which vehicle that was, but it was quite a surprise to many. Um, we have test rigs. We have the original prototype flight aircraft that were created for verification and glory flights. And then the people will be treated to a evening of extravagant meal, beautiful hotel, luxury hotel, with the next day a flight in a simulator giving you the full fly drive experience down at the airport close to us, which is in Breda, and also a flight, an actual hands-on flight in a little gyrocopter. So it's quite a fun package, and we're offering that on our website to, to limited availability for the next three months. So, um, yeah. Awesome. So it's on your option. website. What is your website address then? How do people find out more and get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can find us at palv.com. That's Papa Alpha Lima hyphen Victor.com. So P-A-L-V.com. Okay, that's great. So, Andy, thank you so much for your time today. You've been absolutely awesome. I'm sure we'll have you back on again when the car is flying. I would love to come to the factory, do another podcast to find out more. I would love to do another interview when it's ready and flying thank you so much for the generosity of putting the the flight to one of our listeners i'm i'm blown away so there you have it palvi the first commercially available flying car it's not pie in the sky it's a car in the sky andy wall thank you so much thank you to find out more about this podcast and the Jeff Smith Foundation, you can visit us at jeff-smith.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.